Welcome to Heartland Church. It is our prayer that as you listen to the following message, you would experience the heart of God for your life. For more information about our ministry and available resources, visit us on the web at heartlandchurchonline.com. Now, let's join this week's service already in progress. Okay. Luke chapter 5. I'm trying to buy time here. I also want to look at this passage in in, uh, Mark. Let's go ahead and look at Mark. Uh, Mark, now my computer won't work. (laughs) Golly. Okay, here we go. Okay, Mark chapter 2. We're going to read verses 18 through 22, and then I want to jump back to Luke 5. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all deal with this teaching that Jesus does. Uh, But if you look in 18 of Mark 2, it says, Now Jesus' disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Or John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he was with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst and uh, the bur- burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into old wineskins. Now Luke 5, look at verse 37. He says this, And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And then he says this, listen to this in verse 39. And no one, after drinking old wine, wants the new. For they say the old is better. It's an interesting phrase. We often talk about in our circles, in our stream, about the new wine. But Jesus explicitly says, once you've tasted the old, you don't want the new. Because the old is better. What is he talking about? And are we in error talking about the new wine all the time? So that's what we want to look at. Now, so we look at Luke. Let's look at uh, Luke chapter 5. My Bible is still... iPad is still not wanting to cooperate here. Luke chapter 5. Matter of fact, I'm going to go back to chapter 4. Look, at, look with me in chapter 4 very quickly. Jesus is tested in the wilderness. Uh, then he drives out impure spirits in verse 31 through 36 or 37. Then he heals many. And then we get into chapter 5. He calls his disciples, heals a man with leprosy in verses 12 through 16. He forgives the man and heals a paralyzed man. Uh, And in verse 17, it says that on the day Jesus was teaching, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there. So Jesus is teaching and these religious leaders are listening. And what we see in this passage, and really Mark brings this out more than any other gospel, that Jesus' methodology, the way he would teach, was orchestrated to confront the religious mind. There were these traditions, these mindsets that the Pharisees the, the leaders of the law had that Jesus was going to confront with his teaching. And he would orchestrate things to jar them and to challenge their mindset. Because Jesus was here to represent the kingdom or represent 
his father, the king. And so he came to jar them and to cause them to begin to think, it, think of things differently. And Jesus' teaching method was not just the things he said. It was very much what he did. Especially the signs and wonders that he, he, uh, you know, he performed. And so Jesus would teach and then he would demonstrate. He would, he would uh, educate. He would uh, explain. There was explanation and demonstration. And there was also proclamation. It says very clearly in the Gospels that Jesus would go forth teaching, preaching, and healing the sick. So there was proclamation, there was explanation, and there was demonstration. And all three were facets or expressions of kingdom ministry. But we need to understand that in the kingdom, teaching always carries with it the demonstration of the kingdom. And by that, God was validating the truth of what Jesus was saying. And so Jesus is redefining things in the minds of these religious leaders. Because they had a view of God and a view of the kingdom that was contrary to who God really was. And so when Jesus arrives on the scene, the first thing that begins to come out of his mouth is repent. Change the way you think, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He preached the good news or the gospel of the kingdom. Now, etymologically, what those words mean, the gospel of the kingdom is literally the good news of the king's dominion. The word kingdom literally means the king's dominion. In Spanish, it's reino. We understand that better. It talks about the reign of God. When we think of kingdom, we think of geography. But from heaven's perspective in the ancient world, where the, where the Greek word basileia, what it meant was, is the king's reign, his right to rule, his authority being imposed on situations. And so when Jesus would proclaim the kingdom, he would talk about it, and then he would demonstrate that reality. And one of the primary demonstrations was the driving out of demons. Jesus said, if I drive out demons by the finger of God, the kingdom of God has come upon you. One of the other primary expressions was physical healing. Because the kingdom of God is at odds or at enmity or at war against the fallenness of this world. Not against man, but the fall that has captured man. And one of the primary manifestations of that fall is physical sickness. It's torment. Oppression. And so when the kingdom of God arrives, things begin to move. And so Jesus would proclaim that. He would unpack it. He would explain that. And then he would demonstrate that. And that demonstration was key to his kingdom ministry. Because the Pharisees and the Sadducees couldn't deny his message. Because his message was validated by God with signs and wonders. Matter of fact, the Pharisees said, we know you're a teacher sent from God because of the miracles that you do. We know your teaching's true because of the power that's released when you do so. And so we see that very thing happening here in verses 17 through 26. 
Uh, it says one day Jesus was teaching the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village in Galilee and Judea and, Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men carrying a paralyzed man on a mat tried to make, take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they couldn't find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through tiles in the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. Now you know, yep, you can judge the value of your friends by what they'll do to get you to Jesus. Man, when a friend's willing to rip the roof off a house to get you to Jesus, that's the kind of friend you want to keep. So it says this, when he saw their faith, he said, friends, your sins are forgiven. That just strikes me. He saw their faith and said to this man, your sins are forgiven. They extended their faith and he entered into a deliverance based on their faith. And this deliverance wasn't merely a physical healing, which was awesome, but it was the the forgiveness of his sins. He, Jesus says to him, friend, your sins are forgiven. Verse 21, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? How can he forgive sins but God, who can forgive sins but God alone? Verse 22, Jesus knew they were thinking and asked, what they were thinking and asked, why are they thinking these things in, their, in your hearts? Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or say, get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on the earth to forgive sin. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. And everybody was amazed and gave praise to God. I believe the the ESV says they were gripped by awe. They They were gripped by this thing. And it says they were filled with awe in the NIV. And they said, we have seen remarkable things today. You see how Jesus ties forgiveness and healing together. He said to them, what is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or get up and take your mat and walk? Because Jesus understood that the root of of, uh, sickness is sin. What I'm not saying is that just because you're sick means that it's because you sinned. It means, uh, what I'm saying is that because sin came into the world. And so sickness is not the will of God. It's contrary to the kingdom. And the kingdom of heaven is at war with physical malady, with psychological oppression and so forth. And one of the primary manifestations of the kingdom is that breakthrough in those areas. And today, at the end of the service, I just, we're going to leave some time, and I just feel like we're going we're to have the elders come up here, and we're going to do kind of a fire tunnel. Uh, have you ever heard of a sheep dip, where they would, they'll take sheep through a tunnel, and they'll take them down into this, this vat of solution, because there's these uh, insects that will begin to burrow into a sheep, and it will torment them. And so they take them into a solution, they'll just march them in, and it's like a baptism, they'll walk and then they'll go on and to the dip and come out the other side. I feel like the Lord wants to do that this morning. I believe that there's some oppression going on, and God's going to break some things off this morning. God's going to manifest His kingdom. But before we do that, I want us to look at this whole thing of fasting, because Jesus' teaching on fasting comes right out of this, this teaching on healing being connected to forgiveness. Then he he goes into verse 27 through 31. So he's redefining healing and sickness and sin in the minds of these believers. Now he's coming into verse 27 through 31. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up and left everything and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. 
So this was an IRS banquet, okay? But Pharisees and teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So again, Jesus is teaching not just by what he says, but by what he is doing. And he's redefining the heart of God in the minds of this religious crowd. He's establishing who God is really after. And the fact is, Jesus said, I came for the sinner. I came for those that are sick. And what he's implying there is the only way to get to him is to embrace the fact that you need that. That you are one of those who are sick. And if you say you are well, then you have no audience with the king. It's been said that the kingdom of heaven is the only courtroom in the universe that when you say you're guilty, you're declared innocent. But if you, if you claim innocence, you're left with your guilt. And so Jesus is redefining things in their minds. And it's on the heels of this that we find this teaching that we just talked about. Verse 33. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours go on eating and drinking. And Jesus answered, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? What Jesus does here is he ties fasting to his presence. With that, there's an implication that the presence of God and fasting, there's, an, there's a relationship between these two things. Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? Now, there's been a lot of teaching in the last 15, even 20 years on this phrase, the friends of the bridegroom. And of course, uh, the primary source of that teaching has been IHOP and Mike Bickle. And, and we're indebted to him for the message that he carries in this regard. But there's still a lot of people who don't understand this phrase. I, I believe it's in John 3. Where John the Baptist says, I, he said, as the friend of the bridegroom, he says, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. But as the friend of the bridegroom, I rejoice when I hear his voice. I rejoice that he's going to have his bride. And so John, as a forerunner, as the one that Isaiah talked about, the one that prepares the way for the Lord, he had this message of repentance to prepare the way for Jesus John said, I'm the friend of the bridegroom. Well, in Jewish culture, the bridegroom, in a a Jewish uh, marriage ceremony, there would be two best men. There would be one for the bride and one for the groom. And their role was to aid the bride and the groom in getting this wedding pulled off. And they would often be a liaison with the parents. They were guarding the reputations of, the, of the, the, these two uh, betrothed ones, the bride and the groom. And they were going to guard their reputation, guard their purity. So when the, the wedding would happen, there was a rejoicing that would happen in these friends of the bridegroom. There was, there was one for the bride and one for the groom. And John the Baptist calls himself this. And Jesus is implying that his disciples are that. They are friends of the bridegroom. And so he's saying that when the the bridegroom is with them, they're not going to fast. What Jesus is telling us is that there are seasons for fasting and there are seasons for feasting. And we've got to know the difference between the two. And when it's time to fast, you don't need to be feasting. And when it's time to feast, you don't need to be fasting. 
And he was telling the Pharisees and the Sadducees that were questioning their practices. He's saying, listen, right now is not a time for my disciples to fast. I am with them. It's a time for them to feast. It's a time for them to enjoy my presence. But when I leave, then they will begin to fast. That's why Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 6. He said, when you pray... When you fast and when you give. We don't question that whether we should pray. We don't question whether we should give. Well, some people do these days. But there, the fact is, Jesus said, when you pray, when you fast, and when you give. That's the lifestyle of a disciple. And so there's, fasting is part of the Christian life. But even so, we need to understand the seasons, the ebbs and flow of the Christian life. And then he gets into this interesting analogy. And there's been a lot of teaching on this analogy. Often this will be used, uh, this picture of wineskins will be used for church structures. And that's not a violation of the text, but that is primarily not what Jesus is talking about. There's an application there. But what Jesus is talking about is preserving the last thing he's, he's doing. And so well, let's look at it here. Look at what he says. He told them this parable. Again, a parable literally means to throw alongside. The idea is that God's ways are higher than our ways. We don't understand the ways of the kingdom. And so what Jesus would do, he would teach in parables. He would throw the physical, something we do understand, alongside the spiritual, something we don't understand. And in studying the physical, we get insight into the spiritual. So the kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who sows seed. So we can begin to study the sowing of seed and get insight into the kingdom. And in this one, he tells a parable like this. He said, he gives us two analogies. No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, they will have torn the new garment and the patch from the new will not match the old the, uh, I, w- I want to say it's, uh, let me see if, wh- how Mark puts this. Yeah, look at how Mark says it in verse 21. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And so in this teaching, Jesus gives us two analogies. Preserving the new wine and mending the old garment. And both are valid uh, practices of a believer. Okay, both are both the old, the new wine and the old garment hold value for us. What I'm saying is this: both the new things that God are, God is doing that's valuable to us, and we need to guard that. But so are the old things that God has done, and we need to guard those. And they both hold value. And what we've got to, be, got to be very careful, be aware of, is that in this day and age, there, we, can, we can idolize innovation. And we can begin to love the new and fail to steward the old. And Jesus even said, the new wine is put in new wineskins, but it's towards the end of that wine maturing and becoming old. And he said, once you've tasted the old, you won't even want to taste the new. But the only way to get the old wine that has matured, the good wine, the only way to get there is to capture it when it's new 
and put a new wineskin around it so that wineskin will stretch with the wine's expansion and preserve it while it goes through the aging process. What Jesus is talking about here is stewarding what he is doing. When he pours out a new thing, we need to capture it. We need to value it. We need to make room for it. And you can't put new wine in old wineskin. If you try to put the old around the new, you will lose them both. That's what he's saying. The idea behind that is is wineskins were literally skins of animals. And they would lay these skins out, they would treat them with oil and so forth, and they would seal them up, they would sew them up, and they would fill them with wine. But you had to have a new, unused, or a renewed skin in order to put the new wine in. Because wine, as it ferments, it will expand. And if you put it in an old wine skin, that skin had expanded to, the, to its limits. It could no longer expand, and so the only choice it had was to burst. And Jesus said, if you do that, you're going to lose both the new wine and the old skin. And Jesus expresses value for both. It's not just the new wine that he values. It's the old skin. And the fact is, you can renew an old skin. There's a process. You beat it on a rock. You rub oil in it. You soak it in the sun. It's not a pleasant process. And I'm sure there's a sermon in there. Uh, not a real hallelujah one. You know, beat with a rock. and you know, ru- The oil isn't such a bad one, but being soaked in the sun and beaten with a rock, you know, that's not for this morning. But you can renew a skin and make it new again. But if you try to put the new wine in the old skin, you'll lose them both. And then he gives the analogy of this cloth. And what he was saying in in, uh, the the first passage, when we looked in Luke, he says you don't put uh, a new new patch on an old cloth, he said, because it won't match. Luke's concerned about it matching. He's he's got a little bit of a fashion flair, I guess. He, he, that stood out to him. But what stood out to Mark was something else Jesus said. He said, if you do that, if, if you have a new piece of cloth, it's not shrunk yet. And so you sew it perfectly to the hole in the old garment. That's valuable. Jesus is saying we need to preserve these old coverings. But if you put a new cloth on the old fabric, then when you wash it, the new cloth will shrink and tear, and the tear will be worse. So you have to match the old with the old and the new with the new. It's a matter of stewardship. And the fact is, the new, the, the, the goal of the new wine is to get it to age so it'll become the good old wine. We talk a lot about the new wine, and, and often that phraseology is used to express or, or to talk about fresh outpourings of the Spirit. And that's a valid application of that analogy. There are fresh outpourings of the Spirit. And when there are fresh outpourings of the Spirit, it's not a time for us to pull away and fast. It's a time to feast and enjoy. But the goal of that outpouring is that it would mature. And so it's not the initial phase of the outpouring. And the fact is, you can look down through church history, and there has been outpouring after outpouring after outpouring that, that hit the church and brought great moves of God, great deliverance, great healings. The church was revived, but because people didn't learn to steward it well, both the wine and the skin were lost. The skin burst, the wine was lost, 
And some of the churches that were affected by these moved ended up in a worse place after the move of God than they were before. You say, Pastor, how can that be? Well, I'm just telling you, I've seen it happen. I, I know of churches in our state that 20, 25 years ago when there was a fresh move of God going on at Brownsville, Toronto, Smithton, and other spots around the globe uh, totally disconnected from that. It was a sovereign move of God that when God began to move, there were churches that were greatly affected and, and experienced tremendous growth and a lot of salvations. And today, those churches are a shell of what they were and they're a worse state after the move of God than they were before. And it's not because the move of God was illegitimate. It was because of their stewardship of the outpouring of the Spirit. So what Jesus is saying is we need to know how to respond to both the old and the new. And the old garments, we need to patch them with old cloth. And the fresh outpourings of the wine need to be put in fresh wineskins. Because if we try to force them in our, our new wineskins, we're going to lose them. That's why all down through church history, movements have come out of movements, have come out of movements. What happens is God touches a movement, like the Methodists under John and Charles Wesley. They established this, this movement, this revival movement that became known as Methodism. And that at one time, the Methodists were the revival people of the planet Earth. Secular historians look back at England and say that what saved England from the bloodbath, violent revolution that France experienced, where they were cutting everybody's heads off to bring revolution, in England, they had a peaceful revolution. And what saved them, secular historians look back and say it was the preaching of John Wesley and Methodism's uh, effect on that nation. They had a peaceful revolution. They went from a monarchy to a, a, a democracy, and they still honor the monarchy. There was a peaceful transition, but it was because of the influence of revival Christianity. But today we see that by and large, we, many Methodist churches are now ordaining homosexual pastors. They've, they've left the faith. What happened? Well, out of that movement came a movement. Out of the Methodist movement that became the holiness movement, John Wesley's theology of a third work of grace, they believed in uh, salvation as the first work of grace, sanctification as the second work of grace, and then out of that came the Pentecostal movement, which added to it the third work of grace, the baptism in the Holy Spirit. But it was only after the fires of Wesley's holiness revival began to burn down that there was a group of people that rose up and a movement came out of a movement. And they had to have a new wineskin because if they would have tried to put it in the old wineskin, it would break the skin. And those that tried to maintain or stay in that old movement, it was lost. And so out of that rose the Pentecostal movement. We've seen this happen again and again with the charismatic movement, the third wave vineyard movement, the, the move of God in the 90s. And there were church people in churches that jumped onto that and then they tried to fit it within their old structures and often both of them were lost. So what's the application for you and I? You, most of us don't run a movement you don't have a denomination under your, under your arm that you're carrying around here and discipling thousands of leaders. What, what is, how does this apply to us? You need to know the seasons of God in your life. 
You need to know what's going on in your life. When there are fresh visitations of his presence, you need to learn to feast in his presence. There are times when it's proper to just feast on God and have and feast with people. And there are times where it's proper to fast and to deny ourselves. And what Jesus tells us is fasting is connected to a hunger for his presence. If you have all of God that you want right now, you don't need to go on this fast. But if you're hungry at all for more of him, then I want you to consider what God would have you to do during this season. Because fasting is one of the ways that we pursue his presence. There are seasons where we feast in God. and We don't put the old structures around that. We enjoy what God is doing and we feast on him. But there are other times where that hunger, that ache in our heart for more begins to rise up. And those are the times for fasting is what Jesus is implying in this passage. Fasting and feasting are both connected to his presence. And when there's a hunger for more of his presence, it's the time to fast. We see this in Jesus' own life, where Jesus was at his baptism. He went down in the waters, the heaven opened, the dove descended, and the Father spoke. And what did Jesus do? It says he was immediately driven into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tested of the enemy, and he went on a 40-day fast. Why? Something happened in the water that gripped the heart of Jesus, and he wanted more. And he cooperated with that season of fasting. It says he went into the wilderness full of the Spirit, but he came out in the power of the Spirit. It's very explicit in the book of Luke. There's a distinct difference. He was filled with the Spirit. He went out, went into the wilderness full of the Spirit, but he came out in the power of the Spirit. And the transition, the difference between those two was that season of fasting and seeking God. Where God was able to deal with his heart and he cooperated with heaven. And he allowed the Lord to deal with his heart. And he walked with the Lord through that process. I want to encourage you, let's set aside some time at the beginning of this year to sanctify ourselves and dedicate this year to the Lord. And just say, God, we're hungry for your presence. I have this sense I've felt it a number of times over the last few months. A few months ago, probably two, three months ago now, it was on a Sunday morning, and I could feel it in the worship. It was like, and I got up, and some of you may remember this, I said, we're, we're on the edge of a storm front. It was like I could see in the Spirit, we're on the edge of this storm front, and it's touching. It's just like the, the clouds, the lightnings are hitting, and then it would retreat, but it's, it's moving towards us. The next weekend, Christopher got up and he led us in that John Thoreau song. I'd never heard of it before, but it's the storm around his throne. And I didn't connect the dots, but there was, there was something we entered into that morning. It's like we entered into that rarefied air of heaven. And all of a sudden it was time to do business for the kingdom. And there were declarations and there were people going through deliverance. And there was something powerful that happened. And I asked Christopher later about that song. He, said, he told me what it was. And he said, the reason I sang that is because of what you said. 
And I never thought about that storm around the throne of God, those, the, the dark clouds and the peals of thunder. And that is the storm that I feel is coming our way. And we've, we've hit the edges of it and it's retreated. It's hit the edges of it and it's retreated. But God is looking for those who are hungry and will cry out to him and set this time aside and say, God, we are hungry for your presence. We want more of you. I don't know about you. I, I, I have the presence of God. I'm born again. He resides within me just like you. But I don't know about you, but I don't have enough of his manifest presence right now. I want more of him. And I believe God is inviting us into a season to contend and pull on him for more. And that's what fasting is for. So we need to know how to cooperate with the seasons of God. There are seasons for fasting and there are seasons for feasting. I, have, I fasted less in 2018 than I have in 30 years. Some of it is I just felt like the Lord wanted me to get my health in order. <laughs> because I want, to be, I want to be here for the long term. My blood pressure had gone up, so I lost 50 pounds. And I knew if I fast that it was going to throw my metabolism off. And so I felt like the Lord said, take 2018 and get your health in order. But I feel like 2019 is a time to renew that pursuit. Now that's for me personally. We all need to know the seasons of the Lord for our life. And we need to know, when is it a time for a new wineskin and feasting? And when is it a time to get out the, patch, the old patches and preserve the old for what God is doing? And understand that the, the, the goal of the fresh outpouring is that we preserve it so it becomes mature and it becomes the old. It's not those who partake in the initial outpouring, but it's those who can steward that thing over a long period of time. 25 years after the outpouring in the mid-90s, my personal heroes are those that have stewarded that thing well. And are still walking in what they, they experienced back 25 years ago. But they've matured in that. They've learned to release that. They've learned to develop a culture that other people can enter into. And live off of what they were imparted back 25 years ago. It went beyond them being touched personally. And there was a character change. There was something that was established in them that they began to pull on heaven and get strategy and gather people around them. And what was culture, or what was character became culture that they could invite other people into. What was their personal breakthrough became something that they could invite others to enter into. It was a shared experience that became a kingdom culture. And that's what God is wanting to give us. He's wanting to pour out fresh things, but it's not to throw the things he's already given us to the wayside. These things are valuable. But he wants to give us fresh wine and teach us to mature those things into the fullness that God has for us. You've been listening to a presentation from Heartland Church in Ankeny, Iowa. For more information about our ministry and its available resources, visit us on the web at heartlandchurchonline.com. Thanks for listening.